gospel this morning as we continue our verse-by-verse study in John's gospel. Chapter 11, we're going to cover verses 38 through 57. And if we'll this morning, if we'll this morning, with us, Pastor John's in the back, just raise your hand, he'll slip you a Bible, and then turn to John's gospel, chapter 11, verses 38 through 57. We covered the first 37 verses of this chapter last week. We're just about halfway through the uh, gospel of John. It's been a very wonderful and powerful study uh, that we have been in on Sunday mornings and will continue to be over the next several weeks as we go through this gospel, the fourth gospel in the New Testament, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So verses 38 through uh, 57 um, is where we're going to be actually, um, and I'm probably going to go into chapter 12, the first couple of verses as well before we end our study, but we'll see how that goes. All right, we'll see where the Lord takes us this morning. All right. You there? I love to hear the turning of pages of a Bible. So I think it's a sign of a very healthy church, you know that? Because in a lot of churches, people don't bring their Bibles. And um, they um, feel like they don't need to. But here at Calvary Chapel, um, it's such a blessing for us to open up our Bibles and to be able to read from God's Word and be touched by God's Word. And you recall, if you've been with us in our study of John's um, Gospel, that um, Jesus, at this point in our study, is at the Jordan River. He's with his disciples. And you recall that last week when we opened up the chapter that he would receive a message that the one whom you love is sick. Speaking, of course, of Lazarus. And Lazarus lived with his two sisters, his family. Uh, They're in Bethany. Bethany, just a couple miles from Jerusalem. They're on the side of the Mount of Olives. And we know also that the town of Bethany was also called and known as the city of Mary. Mary, who had just a beautiful um, countenance about her because of her devotion to the Lord, her worship of the Lord, uh, was so evident that it captured the whole city. And so it was known as the city of Mary. And we know from the other Gospels that this family of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they were devoted to the Lord, and they had opened up their hearts to Him. They believed in Him, and they were ones that also had opened up their home to Him as well. And we saw that the response of Jesus when He got this message, remember that Jesus is about 30 miles away from Bethany. He's over at the Jordan River down in the Jordan Valley. Uh, He had been there with his disciples. He gets word that Lazarus is sick, and he ends up staying for two more days at the Jordan. And then he would leave and make that difficult climb up to to Bethany. And when Jesus got to Bethany, Lazarus had died. Matter of fact, he had already been in the tomb four days. And the response to Jesus was, uh, by Mary and Martha, was, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And I just imagine in the four days, and those were a long four days of grieving and, and sorrow and sadness that were in their hearts, of, of weeping. And I just imagine that Mary and Martha were saying this to each other. They were saying, only if the Lord had been here, he would not have died. Only if the Lord had been here, he would not have died. And Jesus would make that wonderful claim about himself to Mary and Martha that I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And it's not just embracing a a theological thought, but it's embracing me personally. I am the resurrection and the life. When we know him personally, we don't need to fear death. And you see, a lot of people in the world fear death because they don't have Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. We know that when we uh, have a car uh, that is broken, uh, mechanical problems, that we take it to a mechanic that knows how to fix a car. Whenever we're sick physically, we want to go to a doctor Whenever we breathe our last, and every single one of us will, that will come to the end of our lives on this side of eternity, that we must and need the Savior, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So we don't have to fear death because in Him is life, and He is the resurrection and the life. And now we're going to see as this story unfolds, as Jesus is going to prove that He is who He claims to be. He's going to resurrect Lazarus, 
from the grave, from this tomb, and he's going to reveal the glory and the power of God. So we left off at, at verse 35 where Jesus wept. He, he wept for Lazarus, the shortest verse in the Bible, because he loved Lazarus. And we also saw that it was Jesus, as it's going to be told to us again, that he grieved in the spirit, he groaned in the spirit, he was troubled in the spirit, in other words, is what the original language is telling us. And the reason is the whole idea of death, there's a sting in death, and, and what has come into this world because of sin and death. And Jesus grieves, and he, he's troubled. And in verse 37, the people were saying, could Jesus have prevented Lazarus from dying? And the answer is yes, he could have. But we're going to see that Jesus is going to do something even greater. So, Father, we pray that this morning, that as we begin to read our texts and get into the rest of this story of Lazarus, that, Lord, perhaps that there is something in our lives that is perhaps dying. Or there's some kind of sorrow in our lives. And we can believe in the claim of Jesus that he is the resurrection and life that brings us life to those who believe in him, that promise that we have to comfort us, but Lord, also that he desires to work in our lives, that God's glory would be revealed, that God's plan will show us and prove to us that he cares for us, and Lord, that, um, that we can trust and rest in your love. So Lord, I pray that you would touch our hearts and whatever circumstance that we're facing, that brings sorrow or difficulty, or we look at it and we think, Lord, how can you work? We know that you can. So bless this time in the study of your word, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's pick up our text at verse 38 of John chapter 11. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone, Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Uh, the thought has been, if Jesus, you would have, if you would have been here, Lazarus would be alive. Uh, you would have worked and everything would be okay. But too bad you weren't here. You see, last week as we talked about a very important precept that we need to understand as children of God is that God's delays are not his denials. And what seems to be God's delays are not his rejection of you and me. It doesn't mean he doesn't care about us or see us or hear our prayers. And sometimes we can think that, can't we? Naturally, we think, Lord, this thing is dying. Lord, this is a, a troubled uh, time in my life. Lord, I'm going through such sorrow. Lord, it seems so hopeless. And we're waiting for the Lord to work. And I'm sure that perhaps in these four days that Lazarus lay in the grave, that perhaps Mary and Martha were going through the those kinds of thoughts. Where is Jesus? I thought he loved us. Where is he? The messenger has already come back and Jesus hasn't come. And as day one would turn into day two and day three and into day four, they're wondering why the delay? But God is working. He is working here. And Jesus working so that the glory of God would be revealed and that people would come to believe that truly that he is the Christ, the Son of God, that truly he is the one that gives victory over death. So take the stone away from the tomb is what he says to Martha. And Martha is very much taken back by that. Lord, what do you mean? He's been dead for four days. There's going to be a stench. I like how the King James reads. If you've got a King James in your lap, it, it reads, by this time he stinketh, is what it reads. And I'm sure that Martha and the others are thinking, roll away the tomb, there's going to be a stench that's going to come forth. He's been in there, he's beginning to decay. He's been dead for four days. Why roll away the tomb? And probably they're thinking that maybe Jesus, because he wept, verse 35, because he groaned in his spirit, he troubled, he, he wants to see Lazarus for one last time. Maybe that's perhaps he wants to do, because he loved Lazarus. So here he says, take away the stone, roll it away. And so oftentimes in our own lives, the Lord wants to do a wonderful work in our lives. He wants to bring life into something that has been dead. But before he can work in that situation that is decaying, perhaps we think it's dying, 
Or maybe we say, that situation, that circumstance that I'm in, it just stinks. We need to expose the problem. We need to roll away the stone. That is, we need to open up our hearts fully and completely to the Lord. And the Lord says to you and to me this morning, let me have total access. Roll away the stone. But Lord, we say in protests oftentimes, do we have to deal with that? Do we have to deal with that stinky issue? I'm embarrassed by it. I'm ashamed of it. I don't want to deal with it. And the Lord had given Martha a promise. I am the resurrection and the life. So here's a prerequisite. You need to roll away the stone. You need to open up the tomb. And we need to roll away those things that are preventing us from giving that situation, that circumstance completely to the Lord. And we need to open up our hearts to Jesus fully and completely to Him. Lord, here is my heart. Here are my hurts. Here where I am troubled. And to allow Him to work in that situation to bring life into it. But sometimes those things that we face, we want to keep it buried. We want to hide it. We allow it to continue to decay. When the Lord says, I want access. I want access. I want you to trust in me and rest in my love, and I want you to trust in the promises that I give to you. So in verse 40, Jesus said to her, didn't I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So Jesus here is drawing Martha's faith out here. Martha, don't you remember what I told you? And the Lord will patiently do the same thing with you and me reminding us of what he has declared, his promises, his commandments, his precepts that he's given to you and to me. And even though uh, the situation that we might be going through seems hopeless, or it seems like it's dying, it seems like it's decaying, he's the one that reminds us in his word that my word is true, my promises are true for you. And you can be established in my word. And sometimes it, it takes a little time for us to just come to that place of rest of saying, okay, Lord, I do hear your voice. I do believe your promises. I know that you love me. I know that you want to work in my situation in my life. Martha, didn't I tell you and promise you and give my word to you that if you believe that you will see the glory of God and the Lord desires for us to see his faithfulness and his goodness as we open up our hearts to him, as we trust in him, as we just surrender and just rest in him. And verse 41, so they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. In verse 43, now, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had been dead came out, bound hand and foot with great clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. So Jesus is praying audibly. He's lifting his voice so uh, the people can hear. Father, I pray that the people who are watching, who are listening, might know that you sent me. And so with that, he cries out, come forth, Lazarus. Come forth, Lazarus. And I believe that he had to specifically say the name Lazarus by name. Because Lazarus perhaps was in a tomb. It was a family tomb. They, they would have tombs and caves. That's where they would bury their people. And this is perhaps an area where there's a number of caves, kind of like a cemetery. And, and there's all these you know, uh, tombs there that are sealed. And, and perhaps Lazarus is in a family tomb. He had to say Lazarus because if there was anybody else buried in that area, they would have come forth. If he would have just said, come forth, he had to say, come forth, Lazarus lest anyone else in the tomb came forth. And he came forth wrapped in his grave clothes. I just wonder how astonished the people were as all of a sudden the tomb is open and, and they're watching and they hear Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth. What they're thinking, are you, are you serious? Really come forth? And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, this man appears at the entrance of the tomb. He's got his grave clothes on. Paul the Apostle would write in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. 
Paul also, as he was writing to the church at Ephesus, writes in chapter 2, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. You see, every day, people who are dead are coming forth and are being made alive through Jesus Christ. And you and I who name the name of Jesus, we were dead spiritually before we came to Jesus. That's what the Bible declares. Because of sin in our lives, because we're born sinners, we're separated from God, and there is a deadness that is in our lives spiritually. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. He has made us alive. There's a newness of life that is in our hearts, isn't there? And we know that to be true. And many of us, if not all of us, we have that testimony of when I came to Christ, I felt alive really for the very first time. I know I did. I felt alive. I, I felt like, wow, Lord, I didn't realize how there was a deadness that was in my life. I didn't realize how there was darkness there. And I feel alive for the very first time. The weight of sin gone, the guilt, uh, uh, having the Spirit of God that is in my heart now. I truly am alive, and I can live in that newness of life in Jesus Christ. But I want us to notice something else here. Jesus is the one that brings life to us. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the one that makes us alive. But he says to those people around, go and take the grave clothes off of Lazarus. I'll make them alive. But then he allows us to come alongside of them, those who he saves, those who he makes a new creation in Christ. It's the work of, of, of Christ, a work of the Holy Spirit drawing us to him. But then we get to come alongside of them and lose them. You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Jeff? We get to share with them. We get to pray with them and encourage them and minister to them. As we come to Christ, there's still things that that have us bound up, maybe some carnality, struggles that we have, issues that we're dealing with. And those of us that are here in this place, born again by the Spirit of God and saved and it's wonderful and we're alive, but we have the privilege of encouraging one another, to pray for one another, to give God's word to one another, to be loose from the things that are dead in our lives and, and causing our lives to have a stench and the things of the world. So you go and loose them. You go and minister to Lazarus in that way and clean them up. And we have opportunity to minister to others as well. So Jesus here, raising Lazarus from the dead. Now remember that Jesus is going to prove in a few weeks uh, after this event here, that he is the resurrection and the life when he is raised from the grave after three days, after he dies on Calvary's cross, put into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a tomb that had never been used, and he would rise from the grave. And so John's gospel is now going to focus on the last few days of Jesus' life. We're going to see in the rest of the chapter here that we're going to see the reaction of this miracle and then when we move into chapter 12, from chapter 12 to the end of the gospel is going to tell us of the last days of Jesus' life, including his death and burial and resurrection. So John is inspired by God to write half of this gospel focusing on the last few days of Jesus' ministry. Matter of fact, it's a pattern that we see with the other gospel writers as well, that much emphasis is given to the last few days of Jesus' ministry. You see, when you add up all the chapters of the Gospels, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are 89 chapters. Out of those 89 chapters, there are four that cover the first 30 years of Jesus' life with only a, a brief mention of his boyhood. Most of those, those four chapters dealing with the events surrounding Jesus' birth are shortly after his birth. 85 chapters deals with the last three years of Jesus' life. And out of those 85 chapters, 27 chapters deal with the last week of Jesus' ministry. So there'll be a quiz on this right after the service to see if you're listening. But what we see here and what we get is about a third of the gospel accounts is telling us and emphasizing the last few days of Jesus' life. And because the emphasis is the death and, and resurrection of Jesus, that is the preeminent message of the gospels. 
the preeminent message of the Gospels, and my high school students, one of the essays that I have them write is, why are the Gospels important to read? And I, I was so blessed because they got it. They, they came back with an essay saying, because it tells of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the gospel message is emphasized. And that's the gospels telling us how Jesus came to this world. Yes, the miracles that he performed. Yes, the, his ministry is so wonderful. But the emphasis is on his death for you and for me, going to Calvary's cross and dying for our sins. Because we are without any hope, all of us born in sin, born with the sin nature, born as sinners. And Jesus came to take care of the sin problem. The one who was sinless went to the cross for us. And he was put into a grave and he rose again. He validated what he did on Calvary's cross in dying for you and for me. He conquered sin and death and he now makes us alive. And it would be Paul the Apostle that would have that same kind of mindset, that is the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was the emphasis of his ministry. And it needs to be the emphasis of our ministry to others as well. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that I am determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So this raising of Lazarus is just a preview of what is going to happen with Jesus by raised, being raised from the grave after his death on the cross. And so in verse 45, then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. So we know that Jesus' revelation of himself you know, always produces two responses, just as it does with this miracle of raising Lazarus from the grave. In verse 45, we read that many would believe. In other words, the, the miracle was clear proof of Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and the life. But isn't it interesting that others went away to tell the enemies of Jesus what had happened? Their hearts being hardened. Their hearts so hard and still full of unbelief. They go and tell the Pharisees, this is what has happened. It's like they're there just watching to, to see what Jesus is going to do so they can go and tell the religious leaders. And that's the same response of people today. You see, when they hear or see the works of Jesus, hear the wonderful declaration that you give to them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the way to forgiveness. And you give them the gospel message. They see in your life that you truly are alive. Some will see the reality of Jesus and, and the Word of God touching their hearts. And they'll want to open up their hearts to Him. Or they continue it seems like to be cynical. And we don't understand that. Why wouldn't anybody want to come to the gospel? Why wouldn't anybody want to be forgiven and saved? But there are those that will harden their hearts to the Lord. They'll harden their hearts to the witness that you have, the reality of Jesus Christ in your life. So with the reports of what Jesus did, the religious leaders decide that we've got to have this emergency meeting. And we read that in verse 47. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. So the religious leaders of the nation were afraid that if they didn't stop Jesus with the signs that he was doing, and particularly with this sign of raising Lazarus from the dead, that Jesus is going to get this huge movement following him, and then the Romans are going to come, and they will see that this, this movement has started, and they'll be very brutal to our nation. But what I believe also was of concern to the religious leaders is that they're going to lose more of their authority with the people. And that's one of the things that they've been concerned is Jesus has come into Jerusalem. He, he has done healing. He healed the man who was born blind, chapter 9. He healed that man who had an infirmity for 38 years in chapter 5. And the religious leaders are afraid that they're losing their authority with the people. They're, they're going to lose um, the respect or um, the people looking to them. You see, the Pharisees, the chief priests, their ministry was simply a platform for their own personal benefits. And they didn't minister to the people in a way that God wanted them. They weren't shepherds that were truly caring for the people and tending the people and teaching the people. 
but they would rule with a heavy hand. They were not interested in things of God. And unfortunately, that can happen today. That there are those that can get into the ministry, and they get into the ministry to see how the ministry can benefit them. They try to rule over the people, to, to be in the limelight, to be popular or have prestige. And they use God to exalt self, and it ought not to be ever. So here is the religious leaders. They are concerned on two fronts. One is we're going to lose our religious authority with the people. They're going to turn to Jesus, Jesus who has already rebuked us publicly, and they're going to turn away from us. But then there was a fear as well that if Jesus gets this large following, that it would be seen by Rome as uh, a rebellion against them, a threat against Rome, and then they would pounce on the nation. And Rome, as you know, was very powerful, very brutal at this time. And they did not hesitate to crush any rebellion uh, that they saw that was rising up, or even the appearance of one. So the religious leaders have fear. Today, fear is a motivation that will keep people away from coming to Jesus. There are those who feared that if I surrender to Jesus, that I'm going to lose my position in life. I'm going to lose my relationships with friends or others. I'm going to lose my prestige. I'm going to lose my social status, whatever it might be. Not realizing that our position in Christ is so much more glorious and wonderful than any status that we might have in the world. So this is what the religious leaders are thinking at this time. We continue reading verse 49. Then one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So at the time that Jesus would die at Jerusalem, Caiaphas is the high priest. Jesus, when he gets arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, what's going to happen is, first of all, he's going to be taken to Annas. And this is where it can be a little bit confusing. Annas, the high priest. And here it says that Caiaphas being the high priest that year. So Annas, the first trial that Jesus goes on, when Jesus gets arrested, bound up in the garden, he's going to be taken and he's going to go through a series of six trials that we will see. The first one that he stands before is Annas. Now, Annas is not the official high priest, but he's the power behind the high priestly office. And the reason that he's the power behind the high priestly office, you remember in John chapter 2, when Jesus came into Jerusalem in the first cleansing of the temple, he drove out the sheep and the oxen and, and let loose the doves for sacrifices, those animals. He overturned the money changers' tables and he rebuked the religious leaders that you made my father's house a, a house of merchandise. And they didn't like that. By what authority do you do these things? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. But Jesus, in doing that, what was happening as people were coming into the um, city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, they were to give a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was to be of a lamb that was without spot and blemish. Well, you got people that are coming from all over uh, the known world there, all over Israel, all over, you know, the Roman Empire. And for them to bring an animal was not very convenient. By the time that animal got to Jerusalem, it'd be, you know, skinny and, and you know, got scars on it and beat up and all of this. So somebody came up with a good idea. They said, why don't we already have some pre-approved lambs that are there so when people come from afar they can just purchase a lamb and they can use it for a sacrifice it's already been pre-approved and doesn't have to be inspected and that was a good idea but what happened was is that Annas took that idea and he began to rip the people off selling the, the animals for sacrifices at a very high price and of course the exchange of money they didn't accept any Roman corny, coinage 
and they wouldn't accept that. They would have to exchange it for temple money, and it was at a very high rate. And so Annas is making a lot of money. So here's the thing about the high priest's office. When Rome came in, Rome didn't care about the Old Testament qualifications of the high priest. We know that the priestly family would come through Aaron, and the direct descendants of Aaron would be the priests, and the high priest would come from a direct descendant of Aaron. They didn't care about any of that. All they cared about is we want a high priest. Remember, there's no king in Israel. There's no prime minister. The Romans are ruling. So the leader of the Jews right now is the high priest. So they want a high priest that's going to work with Rome, that's going to appease Rome, that is going to you know, do what we tell him to do. And also, we don't want the high priest to be in the high priestly office for life, like in the Old Testament, only for a couple of years. And also, we want um, to benefit from this. So we're going to give the high priestly office to the highest bidder. And that was Annas. So Annas was the high priest. He begins to really make a lot of money out of the selling of oxen and sheep. He, he's making a killing. And so after, you know, several years, he's able to pay off Rome and be able to pay uh, for his sons and son-in-laws to become the high priest. So that's what's going on here. So Annas, he's the, the power behind the high priestly office. He's given full attention to the selling of sheep and oxen. And here, in just a few weeks, Jesus is going to go in and do the second cleansing of the temple there at Passover. And so his son-in-law is now the official high priest, and he's just as corrupt as Annas. And we see that John points out that Caiaphas spoke prophetically about Jesus, and of course, he didn't even know that he's speaking prophetically. You know, when, when Caiaphas says this here in, in verse 50, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish, he's thinking we can't let Jesus have this, this large following and all of a sudden, you know, it, it is crushed by Rome and, and then that's bad news for us. But John inserts in, in verses 51 and 52 that he doesn't even realize himself pointing to, to, that he's pointing to Jesus' substitutory, substitutionary atonement for the nation, for all of mankind. So Caiaphas, in other words, you're right. One man will die so that all men can live. And this prophecy attributed to the office of the high priest, not the man of the high priest, John stating being the high priest that year, he prophesied. It wasn't his own authority. In verse 53, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Now, you might be thinking, Pastor Jeff, as we've gone through John's gospel, we've seen that they want to put him to death. But now it's official. There's no turning back. They are planning specifically, putting all of their efforts. It's a priority to kill Jesus. There's no turning back at this time. We are not going to rest until he's been put to death. So verse 54, therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. So about 15 miles to the north of Bethany, Jesus goes to the city Ephraim where he's going to stay until Passover. He isn't going to be ministering to the nation for the next several weeks until he comes to, you know, the city of Jerusalem for Passover. But for now, he isn't going to show himself to the people. In verse 55, and the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it and that they might seize him. So we're now going to be coming to the last week of Jesus' life, the last week before our Lord is crucified. And there are many that are making their way into the holy city of Jerusalem. Now, Josephus, the Jewish historian, in his works, he puts a little insert in there that's very interesting. The Romans at this time wanted to take a census of the Jews. They wanted to know how many are coming into Jerusalem during the feast 
so we can make appropriate plans to have enough soldiers for security in, in case a rebellion um, is, you know, um, begins or, or rises up. And so the Romans said, we want to count the people. The religious leaders went to the Romans and said, listen, don't count the people. Please don't count the people. And the reason is, is because the last time that happened, that was a thousand years earlier, when David took a census, it was bad news. A plague came through. So what they talked the Romans into doing is counting the sheep that would be sacrificed for Passover. And Josephus records a number that in a Passover during one year, during this time in history, that there were 256,000 sheep that were sacrificed for Passover. Now, that's a lot of sheep. And if one sheep is sacrificed for how many in a family? Some say as, as you know, average number five. Some scholars say an average number of ten. So if you take the high number, that includes grandparents and, and children, um, that if it's the high number, 10, 250,000 sheep, you're talking about over 2.5 million people that are in the city of Jerusalem. We're talking pack out. If it's the smaller number, you're still talking over a million people. So you can imagine people pouring in from everywhere and all the sheep and, and all the activity down as they have found that there were chambers under the, the temple proper and all the selling of the oxen and the sheep and all that's going on. And all of a sudden, in the midst of all of that, here comes Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb that's going to come and die for the sins of humanity. So chapter 12, a couple verses, and then we'll, we'll close for today. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was and had been dead, whom he raised from the dead, and where they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And then Mary took a pound of very costly oil, spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of oil. Before Jesus heads to Jerusalem for Passover, he goes to Bethany here, two miles again from Jerusalem. He goes to be with his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And in this house, these three that are in this family, I do believe that we see a picture of the church. You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Jeff? Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, I'll be in the midst. And I want you to know that every time that we gather here, whether it's on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or for a men's study or men's prayer, whether it's ladies' studies or other things that we got going on during the week, all the time as we meet here, where two or three are gathered, that Jesus is in the midst. I want you to know that he's here this morning and he's here in our midst. And he desires to just minister to you and touch your heart and to bless you. So he's here. He's always in the midst of those devoted to him. And notice, not only do we see a picture of the church, but I think that we see uh, the components of the church in this little house of Bethany. And what I mean by that is, first of all, we see Martha. She's serving. You recall that she is the worker, in Luke chapter 10, I've made reference to that chapter. It was a few months earlier than this time here that we're reading about and as we open up chapter 12 of John. But she was serving as well at that time. But you recall in Luke chapter 10, as she was serving, as she's cooking, she's in the kitchen, she began to complain. She began to be uptight. And she, she yells out, Jesus, tell my sister to get in here and help me and give me a hand. And I imagine she's doing that as, you know, she's stirring a pot and trying to get the bread out of the oven. And she's just uptight and she's complaining and she's stressed out and all of this. Tell her to get in this kitchen to help me, and Jesus said, Martha, Martha. And as I've said before, whenever Jesus said your name twice, you know that you're going to be corrected. Martha, Martha, uh, you know, you're worried and troubled about many things. What was she worried about? What was she troubled about? We don't know for sure. But I do know this, that in my own life, that when I'm working for the Lord and serving the Lord, and you can feel the same way, that we get busy and it gets complicated and we get stressed out 
And when that happens, I can begin to complain. And I begin to murmur. And Lord, why aren't they helping me? And Lord, this and that. And sometimes I begin to complain and murmur. I'll speak for myself, but I can easily fall into this. And, and somebody will say, why are you complaining? Or Sue will say that to me or whoever it might be. And I'll think, I don't know why I'm complaining. I'm just doing it. And we can easily do that. And the Lord at those times reminds me over and over again that, Jeff, I'm not concerned about your busyness, but I am concerned about you personally. Mary has chosen the better place. They just sit at my feet. And there is a time to work, but the priority is to know him and to love him and be devoted to him. That's for any of us. To know Jesus is more important than serving. And I'm not saying that serving and doing the work of the Lord is not important. Yes, it is important. But knowing Him and being devoted to Him. And there are those times when we begin to just complain and murmur that we need to stop. And we need to remember that it's a joy and a privilege to be able to serve the Lord. You see, here at this point, she's not complaining. And there's 17 people in the house. There's Jesus and the 12 disciples. That's 13. Three from this family. You say that's 16. Where do you come up with 17? Well, you read Mark's gospel. This is taking place actually at Simon the leper's house. Simon the leper. Apparently somebody who was a leper, Jesus cleansed him and healed him. And so there's 17. And here Martha is serving. She's not complaining. She's doing it with joy. There's just a sense of, of peace that is in this little vignette that we're reading about. She's doing it joyfully unto the Lord. I am very, very thankful, listen, to the Marthas that are here in this ministry that I see that are serving the Lord, the workers. But may we as workers do it not complaining, not being burdened, but do it joyfully unto the Lord and see it as a tremendous blessing and a tremendous privilege and opportunity that we have to do. Second of all, not only do I see Martha that she is serving, but I see Lazarus as being a witness you say, what do you mean he's being a witness? He's not saying anything, and he doesn't say anything. There's nothing recorded that he's saying, but that's the beautiful thing. Lazarus never speaks a word. He just is. He just is. He's there. Matter of fact, peek at verse 9. It tells us in chapter 12, verse 9, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus. Isn't that amazing? And many of the Jews came to, to hear Jesus. Yes, he's doing the teaching. He's sharing. They're hearing Jesus. But Lazarus, we want to see Lazarus because Lazarus was dead. He was dead. And there he is. He's at the table with Jesus, and he's eating, and he's laughing, and he's living. He's a witness. Because, you see, being a witness is more than words that, that we share. And, yes, that is witnessing to others. And that is very important, that we give the truth of God's word, that we give the gospel message. But it's also in who we are, that we are brought back from the dead. That people look at you and me and they say, your life was dead. You had a stench in your life. And you were all bound up by all kinds of worldly stuff. And now you've been freed. And you have a newness of life. And that's a witness to others. And may people look at us and be amazed and at wonder of who we are. And that is one who's devoted to Jesus Christ and living for the Lord. And I'll tell you the truth on this. People will always wonder about and be drawn to a place where there is a Lazarus or two or three or more. People who were once dead in sin, bound by iniquity, but now have been made alive. And that's why it's such a wonderful thing when we have people that come to Christ in our services, people that come to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. And that's why I want to encourage you here at Calvary Chapel, bring those who aren't saved. Come to church. I'll buy you breakfast. 
I'll, I'll pick you up, but to invite people so they can hear the gospel, the Lazarus of our lives, to bring them here that they can be made alive. I imagine the people are just staring at Lazarus to know that he was dead, but now look at him. He's sitting and he's eating. And even though we never hear him say a word in Scripture, that the people marveled because he's alive, raised from the dead. I hope and I pray that it's exciting for you in being a witness and living your life before unbelievers in such a way that they'll be curious and they'll wonder and they'll be amazed to see the reality of Jesus Christ in your life. So here's Martha, she's serving. Lazarus is witnessing. Thirdly, Mary is worshiping. She takes that alabaster box as we're going to see valued at a nearly a year's wages, salary, and she broke it and poured it out and perfume uh, or to anoint the, the, the um, you know, feet of Jesus and, and the fragrance filled the house. And we're going to talk more about her next time, this act of worship. But I want to leave you with this. Do you want your Christianity to be joyous and exciting and dynamic? Then number one, be a worker. Serve the Lord and whatever the Lord might have you to do. In laboring in prayer for others and serving in practical ways. And just whatever the Lord has given you opportunity to do. And do it joyfully. Second of all, be a witness with your life. I want people to see how real Jesus is in my life and with my words. Bring somebody to the church. Don't be stagnant. Don't be stagnant. But be that witness. And then thirdly, be a worshiper. And may those three components be a part of our lives as well as this church. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for just this wonderful gospel that we have opportunity to, Lord, just be in and to study and to look at. And so, Father, we do come here. We believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, just as he claimed to be, just as he proved. But not only raising Lazarus from the grave, but, Lord, that he was raised after three days of dying for our sins, proving that he died for us. He conquered sin and death. And Lord, I do pray if there's anybody here this morning in the coffee shop or in the sanctuary that if you're here and you've never opened up your heart to Jesus, that you're not right with God. And perhaps you're here and you can't say you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You haven't surrendered your life to him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. It comes through none other, no one else, nothing else. Jesus alone will forgive you of your sins, that sins that separate us from God. Because he took this sin, your sins upon himself, as he hung on the cross. He did the work. He cried out from the cross, it is finished. And Jesus was put into a grave and he rose again after three days. He proved that he conquered sin and death. And now the word of God says that life comes through faith in Jesus Christ. You trust in him. Don't go the direction you're going. Quit going the direction you're going of the world and sin. And you turn to Jesus and you cry out to him in faith. To be forgiven of your sins and to live in that newness of life to be born again by the Spirit of God. That's the way to salvation, right relationship with God. It only comes through Jesus. And He loves you. That's why He went to the cross. He wants to give you a new life, a new beginning. So if that means anything to anyone here this morning, today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow isn't promised to us. Today. As Jesus says, open up your heart to me and let me sit on the throne of your heart love you and I want to bring forgiveness respond in the way that we saw that those who believed in him that he truly is the resurrection and life don't harden your heart to him 
pray right where you're sitting. That Jesus, I open up my heart to you right now. I confess that I am a sinner and I now turn to you. Forgive me of my sins. I turn away. I repent from the direction I'm going. And I now turn to you in faith and believe that you died for my sins, Jesus, and that you were put into a grave and you rose again. Because I've heard your voice say, open up my heart, and I'm opening it up right now for you to sit on the throne of my heart. Be my personal Lord and Savior. Lord, help me to live for you all the days of my life. And to continue to just experience that newness of life. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for hearing my prayer and for dying for me. In Jesus' name. If there is anybody here this morning that you prayed that prayer for the first time, will you just put your hand up and put it back down? We want to bless you and pray for you, even if you're out in a coffee shop. We always give opportunity for people at our services to do this. Because I don't want anybody going away thinking that, that you know, I heard a Bible study, so I'm okay. I want all of us, for you who doubt, to be able to come and just respond to the gospel if you're not sure, if you don't know. We want to bless you and pray with you and give you some things to help you. Anybody at all this morning? If you're out in the coffee shop, you can just raise your hand. we got people out there to, to minister to you, to pray with you if you want that. And so, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. And Lord, I pray so much that we talked about that if there's anything in our lives that's decaying, that, Lord, just we look at it and we think it's hopeless. Whatever that might be, that we know that it's not. And it seems like perhaps that the days are a struggle difficult but you're there with us and somehow some way you're working for good that you love us you're not denying us and we can trust in you that you'll bring life into that which is dying decaying that which stinks and Lord I pray that we would be ones that we have a dynamic Christian life because we're serving because we're witnessing because we're worshiping and Lord, doing it joyfully unto you. Lord, take everyone home safely now. Bless our day and our week. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Would you please stand? We're going to close in song, but if you do need prayer for anything at all this morning, Pastor John's up front here to pray with you and to minister to you. Remember Wednesday night, if you can join us on Wednesday night for the book of Job, we'd love to see you. I know you'll be blessed, so 7 o'clock is our service time. So Travis, close us, and then we'll be dismissed.